Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Today's guest is Tom Tilley. Tom Tilley is an Australian journalist. He was, of course, the presenter of Triple J's Hack. He has a podcast that we've talked about a little bit on this show already uh, because it is called The Briefing. It is a daily news podcast and he hosts that alongside a couple of previous philosophy guests, Jan Fran and Jamila Rizvi, who have both been on this show several times. Uh, but Tom was suggested uh, by one of our Patreon subscribers. So if you go to patreon.com slash philosophy, you can join up for as little as a US dollar per month. And uh, what you get there is you get the episodes a day early and you get them ad-free. There is an ad-free feed, not just of the most recent episode, but since we've been doing this. We haven't gone back through all of the episodes. You can't access all of them, but you can access all of the ad-free episodes since we've been doing this. So I think there's probably, you know, 20 or 30 up there that are ad-free that you can have a listen to. But of course, you get all the episodes a day before everybody else and you get them ad-free if you sign up to patreon.com slash philosophy. The other thing you can do is send me a message about the show there. And if you send me a message on the Patreon page, I guarantee that I will read it and get back to you about that message. And a lot of the time it's suggestions for guests. And Tom Tilly was a name that came up uh, several times, to be honest. Often, I, I guess, around when we interviewed uh, Jan for the podcast and when we interviewed Jamila and people like, well, when are you going to get Tom Tilly on the show? I didn't really know Tom very well. So I was very fascinated to have this chat with him to find out a little bit more about his life. And there's a couple of other things. He's definitely going to be back for another episode if he will come back because he's got a book in him that he's writing that is about a particularly interesting period and time and part of his life that we did not dig into on this episode because we didn't want to spoil the book, but we will get him back to talk about next time. This episode was recorded last year, end of last year, so if there is anything in it that it feels a little dated, uh, please keep that in mind that we actually recorded this six, seven weeks ago now, and uh, it's just been sitting around, not because it's not a great episode, just because there was a couple of more pressing and topical things that I wanted to get up and out there. So uh, tofop.com is the place you can find all our podcasts. So uh, there is Tofop. Charlie Clawson and I have a comedy podcast. It's called Tofop. Uh, there is a spin-off to that called Fofop. And uh, this week, a great mate of mine hasn't been on the show since 2017, but he used to be a Fofop regular when I was living in LA and we could catch up more regularly. Uh, a very funny American comedian called Andy Peters. But Andy Peters has an incredible story to tell about something that uh, he and his wife did during the pandemic that has completely changed their life in a very wonderful way, but it's an incredible story. So uh, if you want to hear that, I recommend going to Fofop. And of course, there is a AFL-adjacent football comedy podcast called Two Guys, One Cup. Uh, Charlie and I normally host that. Charlie has been doing a summer season by himself where he talks to various celebrities about the football team that they say they support and why they support that team. It's a really cool series and I highly recommend it. So anyway, you can find all those podcasts and all of James Fosdyke's original incredible artwork that he does for these shows at tofop.com. It's a really cool website. I, I definitely recommend that you go and at least just check out the website. I mean, it's rare that you can say that about a website, but, you know, in these days where you can't go to Facebook for news, I wonder if that is a <laughs> reference that will date very quickly, uh, you can still go to tofop.com for all your independent media needs. We are an independent media network. 
Uh, we make our own stuff. We don't work for one of the big companies that are taking over all podcasts. We uh, work for ourselves. We, uh, uh, you know, it is a place where nobody else tells us what to do other than ourselves, which is a wonderful way to exist. But the way uh, that we do exist, it relies a lot on you guys, your support. So patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go. Uh, if you're new to the show, basically what I'm trying to do is get to uh, a minimum of $5,000 per month as a base. And if we can do that, we can afford to pay podcast Mike and James and everybody involved in the podcast enough money to do two episodes per week. What I'd ideally like to do is a brand new episode early in the week and then a catch up episode later in the week. So if that is a thing that you think sounds exciting, go to patreon.com slash philosophy okay that's the show plugs but i got some other plugs sorry about that but i'm very excited to say that i'm back doing some live shows people in brunswick heads in new south wales my local the brunswick picture house the brilliant brunswick picture house i've been doing my completely improvised stand-up show what you talking about will i've done three of those by the time you've heard this only two when i'm recording it but i'm doing another one tomorrow night uh, which will have already passed by the time that you hear this Anyway, timelines. Oh, feels like Tenant all of a sudden. So anyway, March 13th is the uh, final time for a little while that I will do what you're talking about, Will, at the Brunswick Picture House. So one more show. It is very close to sold out already. So if you want to come and see me do the final for now, uh, the Picture House is going to do some renos. But after that, I will probably come back and do some other shows. But uh, for the time being, March 13th is the final time you can come and see what you're talking about, Will, at the Brunswick Picture House. You can see it, though, in Canberra on uh, March the 6th. March the 6th, I think. Yeah, I think so. Saturday, March the 6th, you can see what you're talking about, Will, and uh, Friday, March the 5th, I believe, or it might be the 6th and the 7th. But, you know, if you're in Canberra and you can work out Friday nights and Saturday nights, you'll be able to work it out. If you go to comedy.com.au, you can find all my dates there, but... Canberra, the Friday night and the Saturday night, I, I think the 5th and the 6th, I will be doing my show Will Legal, my show about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga, an encore performance in Canberra of that on the Friday night. And then on the Saturday night, I'll be doing my completely improvised show, What You Talking About Will. There is also a deal if you want to buy a ticket to both shows. You can save a little bit of money by uh, seeing both on a Friday night and a Saturday night if you'd like. Again, they are selling pretty quickly and it is very limited seating because of uh, you know, being COVID safe and responsible and all those sort of things. So uh, limited amount of tickets. We can't sell any more than the amount we put on sale. There can be no extra shows added. Uh, two shows only. We're legal on the Friday night. What you're talking about, Will, on the Saturday night. Uh, February 26th, I'm bouncing all over the place, but February 26th, which is a the 26th or the 25th, gee, I've really got to get better at doing some plugs. Let me look this up while we are doing this. Friday, the 26th of February, I will be uh, playing uh, in Sydney, an outdoor show with a bunch of hilarious comedians. Uh, uh, so uh, check out that if you're in Sydney. Um, you can find the links on my social media to that as well. Justin Hamilton will be hosting that. I think Alex Jay's on. Um, Oh, the whole bunch of really good people is the answer. I don't have the details in front of me, but they are all people that I looked at and went, oh, wow, look at all those amazing acts. Danielle Walker, I think, might be on as well. Anyway, like really funny, good comedians. Come and see that show. <laughs> it's on uh, February the 26th uh, outdoors in Sydney. That'll be the first time I'm actually doing proper stand-up uh, for a while. So 
that'll be interesting to see how that goes. See if I can uh, work out some of my jokes and jam them into 20 minutes to come and do that show. So uh, Friday, the 26th of February is that one. Okay. I will get better at plugging these as we go on. Let's uh, jump to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which will not be that international this year for obvious reasons. I'm hoping it's going to happen. This is our third go at uh, doing a restaging of my Will Eagle show. So basically last year we were going to do What You're Talking About, Will, and we were going to do Will Eagle uh, for a month of the comedy festival. And uh, then, of course, we all know what happened. So the comedy festival got cancelled and then it got rescheduled. Those were legal shows uh, got rescheduled until October. And then they got cancelled again. And now they have been rescheduled until April again. So we're going to give it another go. Two weeks only. Uh, I will be redoing my Willegal show. I've changed it a little bit. I think if you've seen it before, you'll uh, be interested in seeing it again. But particularly for those who have been messaging me saying that they uh, had not had an opportunity to hear the story and they really wanted to hear the story and it's not recorded anywhere. So if you want to hear the story, you need to come out and see it live. I am doing it for two weeks at the Arts Centre in Melbourne. Again, very limited uh, shows, very limited seating, not a huge... Oh my God, Did, did you hear that? That's uh, thunder. Wow, that was a that was a proper bit of thunder. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> anyway, uh, Chris Hemsworth uh, lives in the same area of the world that I live in, and maybe that's just him arriving home after doing some shooting on the Thor set. That's a pretty pretty niche joke. Uh, okay, uh, I am rambling on even more than usual. I apologise for this. So anyway, here we go. Uh, I am doing my Will Eagle show for two weeks at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, as long as, you know, that happens. So come out and uh, see those shows, buy some tickets. And of course, if it doesn't happen, uh, like all the shows, uh, everything is, you know, fully refundable and we're not going to, you know... Screw anyone for taking a chance on us during a pandemic time. So, you know, uh, buy a ticket and if it doesn't happen, we'll get it to happen again at some other stage. (sighs) That's the world we live in. It's just hard to tell you to do like that. You can have any plans for something that's meant to be happening in April, isn't it? How things have changed. Anyway, I'm going to try to do some more shows all over the country this year if I am allowed to and if it is safe to do and if I can travel. Please go out and support live comedy. There are so many friends of mine back out and about and uh, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I'm not going to bang on about it. Tom Tilley is today's guest. He's a really good guest. I hope you're going to enjoy this episode. And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you, sir? Uh, I'm Tom Tilly. Did you want more detail than that? or you, <laughs> Mate, you said that with such a question mark at the end, as if you didn't even know if you were Tom Tilly or not. You're not. I'm not marking this interview. It's not even an interview. It's a chat. It's okay. I know you come from the world of investigative journalism, yeah. and you're always like on your toes. Where's this going? What's he trying to? What trap is he trying to lure me into? But no, I just want to know <laughs> what you say when someone asks you who you are. Yeah, well, I guess I'm always worried about all kinds of things as a journalist doing interview, like defamation the main one, but I guess I can't really defame myself, so I didn't really need to be so trepidatious <laughs> answering that question. 
And that's because Tom's dead. Yeah, exactly. People don't know that about Tom, but that's the real miracle of his career is he's been doing this whole thing while dead. And everything he says about himself posthumously is true, so he also can't be sued for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) So when you are asked by somebody, hey, Tom Tilly, what do you do with yourself? Like, what are your descriptors? What do you say? Well, I, I sort of think back when you say that to a time where I used to be embarrassed about what I did because now I, I really like what I do, which is journalism. So I talk about, you know, the places I do my journalism and the kinds of people I've interviewed. But back in the day when I, I studied the wrong thing at uni, I did commerce and um, then realized how boring like working in commerce was. And so if people ever asked me that at a party, I would tell them about what I did outside of work. So I was like, hey, I surf and play guitar and Oh yeah, nine to five. I also go and work at this bank, and it like it kind of kills me. But yeah, now it's I guess you know I'm I'm a journalist. I'm doing this briefing podcast in the mornings. Then I'm working on my book. I do stories with the project. That's kind of how the career sounds these days. It's very interesting to me. I think we've immediately dived into a fascinating area because. I wonder sometimes which of those two people has got it right. (laughs) The person who describes their life by what they do outside their work or the person who describes their life by what they do for their work. Like, was there actually something more balanced about the commerce guy (laughs) who looked at the other things he did outside his nine to five and let them define him than the person who now defines themselves? Most people, by the way, when I ask them this question, answer with their occupation and I myself would do exactly the same thing it just strikes me as interesting that that's where we go so talk about those two states somebody who wasn't passionate about their day job but was passionate about their life versus someone who's passionate about their life within their day job yeah well maybe you're right in a way like it's it's sort of a society where we've been become obsessed with what we do and our identity and our pride is tied up in that but traditionally that's not what work has been, you know. It was a much more functional thing. Um, there was a great book about this by Elaine de Botton, The Pleasures and, and Sorrows of Work. And it's like, it's not meant to be that good. It's meant to be hard. It's meant to involve some pain. And so I guess when when work is painful, you do want to talk about other things um, but so many of us become wrapped up in what we do for a career and I think you you point out a good distinction there because it's so easy to let your ego get directly tied to your work which is not not a great strategy for resilience because you know it, it doesn't always go that well particularly when you're working in the media where things are up and down so you know if suddenly I was out of work because of COVID or because I was shit at my job or I actually defamed someone um I would have to go back and really sort of recalibrate that answer. It's been something that I've faced a little myself this year. I had, you know, seven months of stand-up touring work that immediately got cancelled. And, you know, the industry that we work in, you know, there's no easy solution to just getting another job the next day. Like there are other jobs that I can get, but they take months and, you know, six months or a year to put in motion, you know, these other projects. So I really did... Like for six months, I was unemployed and you have to really readjust the idea of where you see your position in the world and where you get your value in the world and what is it that defines you when you're not defined by your job. I, I found it quite liberating, I am going to say. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. So that that's pretty interesting in your situation because you were doing breakfast radio, right, with, with Eddie at, at mm. Triple M. So did you make a big sacrifice to 
put that aside to do this stand-up run and then it didn't happen? Didn't feel like a big sacrifice at the time. <laughs> Retrospectively, a big sacrifice, Tom. At the end of last year, when I was like, you know what I don't need? This well-paid, every-day-of-the-week COVID-proof job. What I need to do is do a year doing stand-up. No, I couldn't have been more excited. Like, I had three shows that I was doing. I had a whole year of touring planned. I hadn't really been out on the road seriously for a while. So, for me, at the time, it didn't feel risky at all. It felt like a new adventure and an adventure that ordinarily I can be guaranteed will be quite successful. So, no, to then have that ripped away, I think, made it even more dramatic (laughs) because you were just like, no, this is me. This is what defines me. This is what I'm going to be doing this year. And now it turns out that is not you. Your job is a super spreader. There is no (laughs) way you can get thousands of people jammed into a room and try to make them expel fluids involuntarily from their mouths for 80 minutes. It is disgusting. Yeah. And in fact, the better you were at that job, the more you would be spreading the disease. Because what we've learned is that the more you sort of talk, sing, laugh, the more you spit COVID at each other. Right. That's why we've gone with an unfunniest comedian. Medians back first policy within our industry. <laughs> yeah, I guess what we're getting into there really is that that trade-off that everyone has to make between passion and practicality, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, so tell me then, take me back to commerce, Tom. Like, what's he like? Why does he end up, you know, studying commerce in the first place? Like, was that a, you know, were you an overachiever at high school? Was it something that your parents were passionate about you pursuing? How did you end up there? It was kind of um, a, a bit of fear and a bit of naivety because I'd actually wanted to do journalism as a teenager. My work experience in year 10, 11, 12 was at radio stations and newspapers And then I kind of got worried, um, partly because of some things my dad shouldn't have said, but did say to me. Um, And so I I kind of went for a more conservative option because I knew there'd be more jobs out of a business degree, basically. Um, My dad ran this like frightening equation at me, actually. We were out on a on the building site. My dad was a fencer and I was like shoveling cement into the cement mixer. building a fence around the bilo in Mudgee in country New South Wales where I grew up. And he's like, you know, Tom, uni's pretty expensive and you might not get a job. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, you think about it. <laughs> it costs you about 20 grand a year to live and about, you know, 10 grand for fees per year. So you come out of uni 30 grand times three, you come out 90 grand behind. And you know what? You, you actually, Tom, you could have been earning money during that time. Let's say you had a job at the coal mine near Mudgee. You might have been making 50 grand. So you're 80 grand behind over three years. So that's over 200 grand behind by the time you finish. I was like, oh, dad. <laughs> so thanks for this inspirational speech about the power of education, dad. Yeah, it was wonderful. And um, so I was like, well, I know the solution, dad. I'll go for a job at the coal mine. So these apprenticeships came up at the Yulon coal mine out of Mudgee and I went, I went for them and did all the interviews. And then they came back and said, 
No, nah, I don't think you're cut out for mining, mate. You might be better off going to uni. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> you got rejected <laughs> yeah. from the mine. They yeah. were like, we've seen how soft your hands are. Yeah. And you've been out fencing with your dad. So university for you, sir. Was money a big thing? Is Because it feels like, like that idea of like, were you had you been a, str- a family that had struggled for money? Was money a big part of the you know, agenda of like what your family talked about, the language of success? Yeah, this was the weird thing. I think it was my dad's hang up um we Mm. we like we weren't a family that struggled like um you know we had our own house and stuff and you know my dad's mum actually owned lots of properties in Adelaide so on paper the family was like you know somewhere solidly middle class but there wasn't a lot of cash and I think my dad had his own career hang-ups he'd studied journalism but then you know didn't end up pursuing it and had sort of ended up building fences. And I I think there wasn't a real financial thing there or or it wasn't a materialistic family, almost the opposite. And my dad had gone down this non-materialistic path, but then maybe had his own reservations about that, which he then projected onto me. Okay, so in a way he was... Right, though. Journalism is a tough career to be going into. You know, it is a in in many forms, not in all forms. There are growth aspects of the world of journalism, but much of what we can consider traditional journalism, you know, is finding it very hard to survive in this modern day environment. So in a way, he was right. You were going to choose to do something (laughs) that is inherently quite a risky profession. Like when I did my journalism degree, I have a journalism degree. And when I did that, People couldn't believe I was leaving the secure world of journalism to go into stand-up comedy. Whereas now, if your kid came to you and went, I'm tossing up between being a stand-up and being a journalist, <laughs> you go, be a stand-up. You can be on the radio. You can do all the things journalists do. You can be on the project just doing stand-up. You don't need to get a journalism degree. Totally, yeah. They're not stacking up too well, are they? Like, this this year's been a shocker. So many jobs have been lost. So, um, yeah, I feel lucky to, to still be working. And I actually, and you could probably relate to this, like, left the security and the sanctity of the ABC last year. And I'd been there for for 12 years and hosted Hack for eight years and, like, been on that taxpayer-funded gravy chain (laughs) train for a while. (laughs) It's a perfect year to come out of that and see what else is going on. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm interested in your views about the state of journalism, but I just want to still explore you going from this guy who's doing, you know, finance Mm to doing journalism? Because there must have been a moment. How were you, like, at commerce? How were you at finance? Did you have a propensity for it? Did you find it something that you actually enjoyed doing? The work side of it, not so much, but the uni side of it, I did. Like, I went into it, I sort of still had this, like, really trepidatious, naive country kid vibe when I was at uni, and I was so shit scared of failing because my plan B had been eviscerated by my... <laughs> my dad's speech um so i got to macquarie uni and i was like freaking out so i was just i got in the front row at the uni lectures and just became this like absolute mega nerd and like i didn't blitz the hsc like year 12 but then the 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 fear of failure at uni meant that i really laid in and got like i ended up with the best gpa in the course and somehow like studying economics really worked for me so then I got into the bank, but it was kind of boring and I was sort of in a, like the sales and marketing role. I wasn't in the hardcore pointy end of the deals. And I was just like, I just thought so much of our life is tied up in work these days. If I'm only going to meet 60-year-old superannuation trustees through my working life, that's going to be somewhat 
dull. So I sat down with the boss and I, I said to him, hey, I think I'm going to have to resign from this position. You know, the last two years has been great. But I, and these are the words I use and I regretted them ever since. But I was like, I just don't think this workplace is socially dynamic enough for me. <laughs> Can you imagine what he was thinking? <laughs> it's not great, is it? It's not. It's not the best. No. So, so you think I need to find a more socially dynamic workforce <laughs> and you think the world of journalism is that socially dynamic workforce. So what happens next then? So you, you quit your job. Did you already have a plan in place or did you quit and then try to get a plan? Um, I quit and then got a plan. So the worst way to do it. Yeah. But what the actual impetus was... Um, my younger brother is this crazy character. His name's Sam, and he was going to Africa that summer for a three-month trip. He read The Power of One by Bryce Courtney, you know, wanted to get in the boxing ring and, you know, travel around Africa like PK in the story. And I was like, you are such a loose unit that I am not going to hear about this over email. I want to come too. So we traveled through Africa for three months, and then I actually moved to Amsterdam for a while and just... um chilled out and um not in that kind of way i was still pretty cautious but um yeah um lived i had a year out basically this is this is, this is not the appropriate podcast for judgment Tom. <laughs> i don't know if you've heard anything of my reputation but it's a safe space great yeah anyway i had a year out basically a like sort of like a later on um quarter life crisis gap year living in amsterdam then i came back and like sort of pu- started piecing together some semblance of a media career, but yeah, it was kind of like mid twenties. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that quarter life crisis period of your time, because I'm really interested in that because I think that that is something that people go through a lot. And it's something that only recently I've heard people start to talk about out loud, but this idea that somewhere around sort of university, out of university, first job, second job in that mix, a lot of people go through, you know, a period of crisis. So yours has manifested in, you've studied this thing, you've done really well at it at university, you've got a job at a bank, maybe not the job that you want, but you know, you're inside the building, you can work your way up, you can see how your future will work there. So you're like, this isn't for me. I'm having some success, but this isn't for me. I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to go to Africa with my brother and then I'm going to live in Amsterdam. Tell me about what's, you know, tell me about that kid and, and what that kid's experiencing and learning and being terrified about. Like, take me back to that person. I think, I think what happens for lots of people that go through a quarter life crisis is they've, you've made all these decisions from the school environment where you know nothing and you've got these strange signals coming at you like, you know, your, your parents and their, their views of the world and, you know, I think you grew up in a country town too, right? You're in Gippsland? Gippsland, yeah. Outside a little town called Hayfield, about 1,200 people. But we were in a place that had 250 right. people. Most famous uh, other resident of Denison, where I'm from, Ricky Muir from the Motoring oh, Enthusiast. Oh, yeah, the Park. kangaroo poo thrower, yeah. Yeah. Did you throw a bit of – I mean, I've, I've, I think I've thrown some kangaroo poo. Have you – not? I mean, we would have thrown cow yeah. poo, I reckon, on our farm. I don't think my dad would have been... We were a dairy farm. He's like, if you're going to throw poo, guys, you've got to yeah, throw get cow the real poo. Deal. Um, yeah, but I think you, you're you're a teenager and you're looking out at this world and you've got no idea except, except for these like strange signals that come at you from the people in your immediate vicinity. So it's you, 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 you chart this course 
and you know you get a few tacks and jibes into that that sailing course to extend a not a very good analogy but you you very quickly realize you were heading in the wrong direction and it's scary when you realize that um and you don't know what is going to happen next and you know in my case i'd had a a great childhood and done well at school so to suddenly be faced with like that real guttural fear of not knowing what to do and you don't have any of the structures around you anymore that you had at school with your social life your academic structure your family life you've you know moved to the city you feel a bit alone and I felt loneliness for the first time as well like I was one of four boys in a family busy country life you know you're in the footy team you're you're also like doing the musicals you're at school and you come to the city and you're like oh it's just just me like I didn't speak I didn't use my voice for the first three whole days of university I had no one that I needed to speak to I just had to go to the lectures and sit down and listen you know that's full on Okay, so Africa. Was Africa the first time overseas? No. So, Or had you been overseas before? So at the end of the uni degree, this um, scholarship came up, had to write this essay competition for an ad agency. And the question was, what are the strategic marketing implications of e-commerce? So this is like <laughs> 2001. <laughs> what are, how, how well is that question dated? <laughs> anyway, I wrote this like snarky essay saying it it was it had had no strategic implications. It was only tactical. So it's like this little bit of like semantic bullshit. But mm. ad agencies love that, as you probably know. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, this is great. So they gave me two grand. I was like, well, what am I going to do with two grand? I was about to start the job at the bank. I was like, I'll go backpacking around Europe. And then that trip just completely kind of blew my mind and that's where I kind of realized wow I don't need to do this like small target safe strategy like life is beautiful life is wild you know you meet people in in cities like Barcelona where I spent New Year's on that trip and they just blow your mind they're so liberal but so smart um more steeped in their history in Europe than we are in Australia. And that's where the sort of explosion happened for me that just sort of changed my whole course. Okay. So then how does journalism come along? Let's, you know, skip forward a little then. How does journalism come along? It, it sort of mixes in with the travel. So from that trip, mm. I just got the bug. And then when we were in Africa two years later, um, we had a video camera and we started um, we actually got brought into this crazy, like, traditional um, cause of family celebration. We were just cruising around Jeffrey's Bay, the famous surf spot, and we met this local guy who took us into the township. And, you know, this was only 10 years after apartheid ended. So there was still a sense of excitement about black and white people coming together. And so we were these goofy Aussie white kids cruising around the township, and this family were like, come in. And next thing we know, we're like, we're in with 40 people and, and they're sacrificing a cow, slitting its throat in front of us and then having all this dancing and family celebration. So we filmed all of this. And when I eventually got back to Australia and was, you know, thinking about getting a job, I was like, oh, maybe I could just, I could edit that footage. And I went for this job at SBS and I used the footage and it sort of, it was this beautiful culmination of, of meeting people, that social um, dynamicism I was hoping for when I left the bank in you know such inglorious fashion 
Um, yeah, so it was like meeting people, traveling, adventure, but also talking about stuff that mattered, you know. So that's where journalism kind of was the perfect point of that Venn diagram. It feels like there's three capital letters in, you know, stuff that mattered, you know, it really. So what is stuff that mattered? Because I guess that's at the heart of what I'm trying to work out on this show is always the idea of what, what is the stuff that matters? What is the stuff that matters to you? What was the stuff that matters then? And how is the stuff that matters different now? Oh, I mean, I guess when I said stuff that matters in that context, I meant stuff that matters to society, mm-hmm. which is maybe a little bit separate to stuff that matters to me personally. So on the societal front, it's like stuff that makes the world a better place. Um, on a personal level, stuff that mattered, it was about it was about adventure, but it was about like who I was as well. So it gets very complex, that, that, that bit of it. Uh, okay. Well, it's a, it's a good time for us to probably ask this question then, which is whether you have a philosophy or not, because that's the loose premise of this conversation is I like to ask people if they have some sort of life philosophy or if they could encapsulate their life philosophy for us in some way. How do you respond to that question? Yeah, well, my philosophy was forming during those years, which is why it's sort of hard to answer that question directly. Um, But it was all these experiences of like, you know, feeling lonely for the first time or traveling and having your mind blown for the first time and then having to piece together a second career. And ultimately, what I came to after all of that was um, that life is basically... A hot mess. Um, <laughs> let me break that into the two parts. <laughs> the hot bit is like the beauty, the euphoria, um, the adrenaline, the dopamine, all all the amazing things that you can experience as a as a human being. And for me, I have a I think quite an optimistic view of life and humanity that. Um, evolution is a good thing and that we're actually moving in a positive direction and even when things get messy there's often light that shines through the cracks um my dad actually brought up the the leonard cohen quote that you know um everything is cracked or broken but that's where the light shines in so the the mess part of the hot mess is that life is never simple that pain is a constant part of life um, and that when you try and oversimplify it or make it too pure or avoid pain, you only create more of it. So, yeah, my philosophy is kind of like this this bold sense of optimism but based in uh, an acceptance of the reality that, that life is messy and painful and that you should embrace that because that's where the the real meaningful stuff happens. How good are you at embracing (laughs) the messy part of it? Yeah, well, you get tested occasionally, don't you? Things happen in life. So um, I had another big test three years ago um, where everything was going well, like this this journey that we've sort of been talking through was sort of climaxing and I was, I had the job at Hack and I was also in this crazy band, Client Liaison, which kind of happened by accident. So I'm like, doing the stuff that matters 
on radio with Young Australians by Day and then slapping bass in this band, driving around in a limo at night, touring. And it was like, it just was like, I couldn't have scripted it better. But then I had this like stupid motorbike crash. Um, went back to Mudgee, jumped on a motocross bike, flew over a tabletop and like basically broke four bones in my leg and wasn't sure if I was ever going to walk again. And that was full on. Okay, so what are you? So you're just mucking around at home. Is that what you're doing? Are you a motorbike person generally? Yeah, I grew up like racing motocross, but I went back to hang out with my mudgy mates, and I'm in my mid 30s, thinking that I can just do it again. Okay, so the accident happens. Do you immediately know that you've done something really bad to yourself? No, initially I was like, "Ah, stuff going to hospital. I'll just get a few painkillers." <laughs> um, and so. <laughs> Yeah, we're back at the farm with the, with my mates and I'm just canning on. I couldn't even yeah. stand up to take a piss. So I was drinking all this beer lying on the couch in the sun, like heaps of painkillers. Their sister ran the local pharmacy, so we had pretty quick access. <laughs> and as someone who runs a pharmacy, she would know combining them with alcohol is definitely the best way to take them. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the two school friends had to pick me up off the couch every 15 minutes because mm. I was drinking so much oh. and I stand me up while I actually took, took a piss at the edge of the garden. So didn't care to start with. And then um, two days later when the x-ray place opened in Mudgee, we went back and um, they're like, oh yeah, your foot's, your foot's really badly broken and you're probably going to need a new a knee reconstruction. You'll need to go to the next town you'll need to go to dubbo base hospital to sort that out i'm like mm. i might skip the dubbo base hospital yeah. and go to you know Sydney. what i don't need to work my way up <laughs> that's fine all due respect to the good people of dubbo i know that dubbo seems like an upgrade while we're here in mudgy but i live in sydney i'm happy to go back there and check that check out some options so the crazy thing was i actually jumped in the car and drove myself back uh-huh. to sydney with like one busted leg and loads of painkillers i thankfully was in an automatic um, but yeah, it wasn't until a few days later when I woke up from the first surgery um, and the just doctor wouldn't give me many answers about what the trajectory was. And then I got um, the MRI on the knee and it's like, yeah, it's, there's two breaks in the knee and a full knee reconstruction. And then it just got, it got really dark. And I, I just had this moment of having to cancel all these plans. I had to cancel a tour I was doing with the band. I had to cancel an interview with the prime minister that I'd been working for months to line up. Um, I had to cancel two overseas trips. And you know, the, the weirdly most heartbreaking thing was I just organized a team to enter a touch footy comp. Like I'd been through that boring admin sort of thing of registering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was due to start the next week and I couldn't play touch footy, which doesn't even matter. But that is just like, oh my God, even the micro level of my life has had to change and then, then I sort of also realized how much like my physical strength and, and even though I worked in a sort of a, you know, a, a line of work that was more like intellect based, like just being a tall, strong, fit, healthy guy, I realized that was a big part of what made me confident. And all that sort of started falling away. Okay, so you talk about like we're in the messiness of the hot messiness <laughs> at the moment and and how messy did things get? Like, you know, in those proceed- yeah, those months that came after that? Um, yeah, it, it was really just a few weeks where I was rattled um, pretty hard and the, there was a 
like it was tough waking up in that hospital and like letting go of control of my life. And then it was the next thing that was really hard that really rattled me was needing help. Like I'd, I'd become used to being so self-sufficient and living life at a fast pace. And the moment where I really actually broke down and cried was asking my little brother for help and just telling him that I, I couldn't do it alone. I was like, oh, and I just completely melted in that moment. Are you a person who, I mean, I, I am a person that finds it difficult to ask for help, mm. despite the fact that the resounding amount of evidence that I have in my life is that when you ask someone for help, they're mostly happy to help. Yeah. But despite that, uh, I do still hesitate a little. I, I, I'm like, I can do this myself. So is that part of your character, the idea of, and where does that come from? What What is that need to be self-sufficient? Yeah, I am that kind of person, yeah. I think it's it's largely being the kind of older brother kind of, character and I'm pretty sort of textbook older sibling kind of person um so I think those family dynamics really set me up for that as being more of a leader um rather than someone that had to sort of reach out especially to my younger brother uh okay so you have to ask your younger brother for help I imagine that he of course says of course I will help you right Mm -hmm. like this is you know because people want to help us we want to help people. It's such yeah. a weird thing when we say, oh, I don't want to ask anybody for help because I'm very happy for people to ask me for help. In fact, it often really bonds you with somebody to be able to offer them some help. But asking for it is a much harder thing to do. So you have to ask for help. You have to be vulnerable. You have to you know, put your life in someone else's hands for a while. What's, what's that experience like for you? Yeah, well, the great thing was that the brother in question was a doctor. Um, Good. (laughs) So quite well qualified for the situation, but he also had a like a beautiful, soft um, manner about him that that meant that it, even though it was a hit to my pride to ask for the help in the first place, as soon as I was in his safe, calm hands, I was just like, oh, thank God that he is this kind of person. And I think in the past I hadn't, Maybe given um, this brother of mine enough of my my own care and attention because I was busy chasing my own stuff, but these qualities that he had of being like solid and patient, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're in your twenties and you just want people that are cool and funny and hot, and then yeah. you get a bit later on and like real <laughs> shit goes down in life and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I have these patient, calm, solid as fuck people. Yeah, someone who doesn't think it's a good idea to go out all, all night every weekend and not sleep for 48 hours in a row. That's not, mate, you're a fun guy, but I really don't need you right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I know you're also saying you can find drugs for me, but they're not the ones I need right now. Yeah, and in fact, Buzz was able to help me navigate all like the hectic amount of painkillers I had to have mm-hmm. coming out of this, so tramadol and all this, this hectic stuff, so... Yeah, that that was a moment, and then um, yeah, there was just yeah moments of sort of feeling really insecure and and fearful. But quick quickly as well, the optimism sort of kicked in, and I started looking for ways of like seeing the upside. Like that, finally, after living a busy life, I was able to stop and think. Uh, that's when I started sort of writing a book that I've almost finished now about my childhood and. Um, there's a whole other thread to that about growing up in a strange Pentecostal church that was mad for speaking in tongues. So 
I started doing that and I thought, maybe I do need to stop. Like I'm pushing into my mid to late 30s. I, I'm still working on a youth broadcaster. I am touring in a band that, you know, I'm not an original member of. So that's not necessarily going to serve me in the long term. And so I started enjoying having the time and space to think bigger about my life and sort of make smart decisions. Okay, so what so what age are you when you're making these decisions now? I was like, that's three years ago, so I was 36, I'm 39 now. <laughs> okay, yeah, so mid-20s, early 20s, mid-20s, you've had a big moment in your life where things have changed substantially, and then sort of early to mid-30s, something else has happened again where, you know, you've had an opportunity to look at your life. So when you were looking at your life at that moment, what were you really – you know, proud of and what was sort of missing that you were like, okay, well, this is the thing that I need to do next. I was, I was really proud and really happy with the way I'd turned things around since the quarter life crisis and that um, all these little dreams and, and fears and ideas that I'd had in that last kind of low point in my life had actually like played out in a, in a more beautiful and magical way than I could have expected. So this sort of blindly stupid privileged optimism that I have was actually based in some real experience and I just had a moment like the month before the crash where I'd had this wildly fun time where the band we got billed to play main stage at Splendor and it had the most magical experience as the sun went down and then I went to New Zealand the next week and and did the most like ridiculous experience of heli skiing so you sort of being dropped up in the mountains you know where it feels like no human could ever go before it felt like the playground of the gods and i just had the most beautiful day everyone there was an investment banker by the way the, mm. <laughs> the kinds of people that afford that i got offered it at a discount anyway i guess i feel a bit self-conscious about talking about heli skiing it's the most ridiculous thing ever but i had um this revelation up there where I was like, everything's come around. My life has come into balance. I've got no more reason to to worry or or complain. It's actually time for me to start thinking about how I can give back and what else I can do. Like the gripes about growing up in a weird church or all these other things, they're kind of done. So that came just before this kind of crash. Um, so looking back from that crash, I was like, things had worked out really well, but the the question that I hadn't answered was how does this go from here? Like what, what is really going to serve me in the long term? So I guess it's like, that's, that's kind of called growing up. I think in a way it's like, yeah, this is great. And this is where, work. yeah, this is where some of the mess gets hot, right? <laughs> like, because it is like people, by the time that you get to your stage of life, there is nobody who doesn't have a whole bunch of scars, like maybe yeah. physical, but maybe mental, maybe emotional. But by that stage, you're a bit like, well, okay, I've, I've seen what I can take from this world to a certain degree. And that's yeah. an oversimplification. But I've looked a little at life like what can I get out of life? What can yeah. my place in this world be? And now I'm starting to think about the idea of what can I contribute back yeah. in a meaningful way. So, so when you start to think about that, what do you think about? What is it that you, Tom Tilly, can contribute back in a meaningful way? Yeah, well, I was still kind of working that out and – you know, when I when I was young and I traveled the world for the first time, it was really about like 
the obvious things like lifting people out of poverty or, um, you know, helping street kids who'd, you know, um, been the victims of, of whatever was going on in, in their country and had this super idealistic version of how I might um, show my compassion in this world. And I imagined the, all the real cliche things like building houses in Africa and stuff like that. But the challenging thing was you realize that a lot of those things don't make sense. Um, that bowling into other people's communities in a, in a patronizing way or, a, or an unsustainable way doesn't actually improve people's lives. So, you know, I guess journalism sort of showed me a lot of those things and I learned a lot of critical thinking. So the, the sort of the strategy to actually make a difference becomes really, really complicated, especially when you then also factor in all the political realities around those issues. So then how do you separate idealism from practicality? How does somebody who's generally optimistic, you know, live in a world where there's so many barriers to optimism? Well, the world was never going to beat the optimism out of me because I just I just feel it and I see it in so many ways. And it actually bears out when you look at the real long-term sort of metrics on how humanity's tracking. We often focus on the problems, but, you know, we've lifted a billion people out of poverty in the last 20 years, for example. You know, life expectancy's gone up. There's all these massive metrics that show we're heading in the right direction. Um it was more a matter of like how as an individual with the things that you have and haven't got the skills, um, the access of, of what sort of works for you, what's a way that you can give back. So like, to be honest, I'm still, I'm still working it out. You know what? A lot of people, they, they want to fix the world. So they start up their own NGO, but I'm, I'm sort of more interested in seeing what else is already being done. Cause there's so many other great people doing great things. What, what can I support? So that's where that idea came from. Um, I'm thinking about other ways that um, can help kids in regional country towns potentially like access the sort of opportunities that, you know, say you or I have been able to that, that isn't always easy from those, those more regional communities. And then the other big question in this whole thing was like having kids and having a family and what, what that kind of means. Um, so I don't have kids yet, but around that time I realised that I needed to start like thinking about that a lot more and I think there's gonna be lots of meaningful ways to help your local community through the school community like um, by supporting that community or the people so I'm sort of like basically when I had that moment of realization wasn't like you need to start giving back now it was more like start thinking about how so I guess I'm still in that stage of the process hopefully I'll actually do something at some point Okay, so I mean, there's so many things to unpack there, but one of the ones I want to focus on is your general optimism about the nature of the evolution of humanity. Because I think that you're right, we do often, you know, concentrate on the things that are going wrong. And, you know, there's been plenty of things going wrong. So there's been some good things to take our attention and maybe not so much on the things that are going right. We assume the natural evolution that things will get better and then we are obsessed with the ways that they are not getting better. So we live in a world just gone through a global pandemic. Well, Australia coming out the other side, fingers crossed, timeline wise of a global pandemic. If we're lucky in Australia at the point we're recording this, there's, you know, basically zero cases, local cases in Australia. We're coming into a summer and there is a timeline for a vaccine for, you know, for COVID. So 
There is a chance that we're towards the end of it and we're in part of the rebuilding. There are other parts of, of the world that are still slap bang in the middle of it at the moment. But we've gone through a huge life and world event. Contextually, where how big is what we've just gone through, do you believe? I think it's pretty massive. Um, and it it just really depends where you landed personally on how much it, you know, was a good or bad thing for you because, you know, may not be cool to say this, but most people have done quite well this year and there's been a lot of upside, but a large minority of people have been hit really hard. So um, I think it's a huge shock, but I hope that it doesn't last that long, you know, say compared to say World War Two which went from 1939 to 1944, you know, five years and then a lot of tough times afterwards um, or, you know, World War One, and then after that, the Great Depression, like they were, they were many years of hard times. Um, we've just borrowed our, our way out of this crisis and, you know, um, <laughs> as long as we don't have to pay back all that debt, you know, who cares? But, you know, technically if the vaccine sort of does play out in the pathway that's sort of being laid out, in front of us, then we might be over the shock within about two to three years apart from some economic scarring. Okay. Do you think that it will substantially change the way we interact as a society? So one of the things you touched on before was this idea of community. And I'm torn between you know two extremes of what lockdown in particular did to people around community. One is the idea that people really understood that that local cafe didn't stay open unless you went and bought your takeaway coffee, that it was better for you to go to that local shops because you couldn't go more than five kilometers away from your home. You had to make sure what was happening in your local community, support your local community, check in on your elderly neighbors. Like there was a real sense yeah. of connecting people back to community. But at the exact same time, you've got people consuming entertainment online from all around the world, shopping online from all around the world. In some ways, we've never been more distant from the people who live next to us as well at the when we come out of this what do you think the lasting ramifications of those are which outweighs the other yeah well i i kind of think like so many of our practices say like the handshake right people really struggled not to shake hands mm -hmm. even though it's such a simple thing and to me that was a classic example of of us not realizing how deep these learned behaviors are so the way we live our lives, we kind of think it's all fads and trends and, you know, it sort of changes very quickly based on the latest, you know, TikTok video. But it's it's not true. We've actually been developing this way of life for thousands of years. And, you know, we moved through the agrarian revolution, the industrial revolution, information age. We're now sort of heading into an AI kind of data-driven kind of age. And so a lot of these behaviors run really deep. So... I don't think in five or 10 years we'll be like, it was a total revolution in the way humans interacted. Um, and I think, like you said, like there's a bit of duality where on one level we've really embraced those, those local connections, but on another level we've really embraced technology's power in accessing global markets. Um, so you saw all the tech companies surge big time during this crisis because um, they'd been sort of working towards that end for a long time. 
um, and it sort of got sped up. Um, the local community side of it, I think, I think that was great, and it was good to have a break from always focusing on where we could go far away and like looking what was happening around the rest of the world. We sort of had this wanderlust, and we were traveling so much. And we're, we couldn't have imagined not doing that. But now we're not doing that. It's like, oh, it's actually cool just to go on holiday to, you know, the South Coast or whatever. So It's a, it's a yeah. lot less hassle. It's, it's less, ex- you get more time on holidays. It's actually really nice here. They've got, yeah, they've got VB on tap wherever you go. So it's fantastic. Don't get that in Europe. Uh, okay. So both of those things, of course, yes, exist. And the inequality, like obviously, was one of those things that is also amplified during these times because those big companies, yeah. Amazon, the big tech companies that were already had so huge, like, you know, concentrations of power and information and data, they, uh, they have more. Now, you know, more than yeah. they ever had. They they grew in a time when everybody else was not growing. So you've come from both a finance background and a journalism background. Yeah. I'm very interested in your thoughts around the idea of inequality and what role inequality plays in our society and whether we're on just this ever-increasing some small amount of people have most of the stuff and everybody else has to fight over what's left. Yeah, I mean, you look at the wage growth in the last 10 years and wages have stayed flat and then you look at the growth in dividends from people that own shares and it's been growing at like a fairly significant rate and I think that's what we're going to see more of. I I do worry that inequality is going to get worse. So if you've got capital where you can own property or shares, basically, you know, assets versus someone that relies on wages... It, that just seems to be getting worse and worse the more um, – it's partly technology, like like you said, um, centralizing control, like, the, you know, the gatekeepers on so many of our markets are those, those people with capital. And technology means we rely on the grunt workers less. So what they bring to the economy is less valuable, valuable which is, you know, potentially part of the reason wages haven't gone up and then – People who got that head start for whatever reason, they were born into the right family or the right suburb, the right social class, um, are just at such a massive advantage. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's, you know, pretty serious concern. Uh, how has technology affected journalism? Because I imagine in your line of work, you can see both the pros and the cons of it. Yeah, well, it means that like the everyday citizen can find out more information for themselves. So it means that journalists don't offer as much value in that way of distilling information for them. It's maybe a bit like when, um, you know, they translated the Bible from its original languages to, um, you know, different languages where people could read it all around the world. It wasn't in Latin anymore. So, you know, it it wasn't only the priests that could tell you whether you were going to, to heaven or hell and the power is in the hands of the people. Um, but then that's kind of swung the other way where now there's so much misinformation that I think some people are actually gravitating back towards those traditional um, media outlets um, because they can rely on them a bit more. What's your journalistic um, philosophy, if you have one? What What is it that you're trying to achieve through your journalism? I'm trying to help people know more about the world they're living in so that they can make the best decisions to live the best life they can. Tell us about Through the Framework of Hot and Messy. 
Talk, talk to me first about <laughs> the hot. Yeah, so okay. in your journalistic yeah. career, what's the hot? Okay. The hot the hot mess of journalism. I guess the hot the hot stuff is the exciting stories, you know. Um it's the big scoops or it's the the holding the ministers to account and those those dramatic moments where there's excitement and adrenaline about finding out what's going on and that journey of getting to the truth. Uh, so tell me then, what's, do you have a favourite story? Do you have like a yarn that you broke or just a story that you pursued for a while or something that surprised you that you just remember fondly, an interview? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. Um, it was only my second year in the job and... I was looking into this broader issue of hearing voices, um, you know, which is a symptom of schizophrenia. And um, I was looking around for different angles and I ended up coming across this woman who was just so, so badly affected by it. And yeah, it's probably still the most like powerful moment of my career was interviewing this woman. And it was, it was a horrible, sad, tragic story. She'd gone from, 18 years old being the ducks of her high school to 25 and just completely rattled by this male voice in her head called Ron, who was basically telling her that she was worthless and that she should kill herself. Um, and she eventually did. Um, and it was so sad, but before that she told her story and so many people just were just absolutely blown away by what she was going through and, got a much richer picture of schizophrenia and hearing voices and what these people were going through and also what her parents and her whole sort of um, close community was going through. Um, so it was it was a mind-blowing story and I'd never heard that before and I felt like it did some social good. But then um, tragically for her, all, all the efforts people were making from her psychiatrist to her family to her broader community, they, they weren't able to save her. Uh, so that's both hot and messy, to be honest. But, like, tell me about mm. a time that you've messed up. Oh, well, I mean, there's little mistakes almost all the way along, like if you listen really closely and you're really analytical about the words and the meaning of them and the, and the, the grammar, um, you know, there's a lot there or, or you're, you're pushing a politician in a way that, you know, you, you maybe have gone off a bit half cocked cause you didn't have enough information or, or, or that kind of thing. Um, look, I guess, look, one of the hot messy things that, that comes up these days is about the the choices you make in, in who you, you put to air. And so I've copped a lot of criticism for um, interviewing people on the, on the far right, um, you know, who um, have been dangerous people. And so I had a very, you know, liberal approach to journalism of shining a light on it so that people can see it and make up their own minds where there's, um, you know, a different school of thought, which is, is about being a lot more careful about what actually gets a platform um, and thinking about how that might play out. So that, that's that been 
a messy part of journalism. And I think there's a bit of an evolving um, school of thought around those decisions. Um, so that that's that's messy and that can be uncomfortable, especially if you're getting a lot of criticism and people sending death threats or whatever or stuff like that. Um, but that's that's part of the learning experience. So when I've come under fire, it's always been this um, balancing act of not letting it destroy you, but also listening at the same it's, time. It, that is a messy area because <clears throat> something I get asked a bit about this show and this is not a journalistic show in the traditional sense of it, you know. Like, so I do get asked, would you have Andrew Bolt on the show or would you have, like, you know, Pete Evans on the show or whatever? And I, and I wouldn't because this place is not for that, you know. Part, part of the reason is yeah. this is not a, like, you know, interrogative, you know, in that manner podcast. If I had Pete Evans on, my natural instinct would be to find the good in Pete Evans or to find the good in Andrew Bolt. And I just don't want to put myself in a situation where I want to do that. I'm very happy to not ever have to like unpick that, but you're in a different position. What you're doing does require, you know, uh, the idea of it's a conversation, it's a debate over ideas, and there can be a danger to shutting down that debate. But also I am very sympathetic to the idea of, you know, the reason that I don't have those people on here is I don't want to give them a platform where people might, you know, think that they were nice people, you know. So I understand both aspects of it. Have you changed your opinion on it all? Where do you currently sit on it? Um, Well, what I realized, and it's it's interesting you use the example of this podcast, um, it's so much about the context. So where I was making those decisions was that the the taxpayer Mm -hmm. funded public broadcaster so that's something that everyone owns from all persuasions from you know the latte sippers to you know people on on the right so those decisions have a very different level of importance and look very differently on the political spectrum than than programs that have a more specific audience rather than that that broad audience so when you're doing that and you're trying to keep the taxpayers happy because they pay for it it's a lot harder and there's, there's a lot more hanging on it. Um, where do I stand on it now? I think it's just still super messy and, and complex because things change over time. So you might make a certain decision on, on someone at that point, but then a month later they might get convicted of a, of a certain crime or someone responds to what they did and, and does something really horrendous. Um, and these are things that only evolve, so it's it's constantly dynamic situation. I think what I've what I've learned is that there's many different ways you can package an interview or set someone up. So there's a real difference in meaning between, say, a live forum like Q and A versus um, a documentary where you can really edit things differently and control the message more. So that's something that's I can easily say that I have thought more about is like the where and how and under what circumstances you will deal with dangerous topics. I definitely still think they need to be explored and reported on. Um, I would just think carefully about the how. Uh, You mentioned earlier that you're writing a book about your, you know, childhood in the church. And I'm, I think, you know, when the book's out, 
come back on and we'll have a you know chat about what's in the book. I don't want to spoil the book by you coming on this podcast and revealing all the stories from the book, but it goes to my first of kind of my more regular questions that we end on, which is what do you think happens when we die? I assume that your answer to this question might have been different at different points in your life. Yeah, well, you know, as a kid when I was part of the church, it would have been you know, we go to heaven, we face judgment day, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so eventually throughout the, the journey that I'm that I'm writing about, I um, end up with a very different view, Not basically not a Christian anymore. Um, and it sort of comes back to where I've landed eventually, and it sort of comes back to the whole optimism thing. And I don't know how much of this comes from the Christianity, but I have this view that like if you and I, got struck by lightning right now via this Zoom call <laughs> and died, that we would go to a very blissful place. I feel like death is going to be fine. And I don't know why I think that. I've got no real evidence for that. Um, but maybe it's just so long I was programmed to believe that I was going to heaven and I would be sort of floating around in fluffy clouds with gods and be be hanging out with everyone I loved in my whole life and um, that sort of like really ultra positive dreamscape kind of picture. That's kind of how I feel about death. I, I don't have much sense of what shape that tanks or where it is or the, the logistics of said bliss, but I just feel like it's going to be okay. Well, it feels like to me you've just gone, are these structures are of no use to me anymore? But I'd like to keep this general feeling that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> That's fine. I don't need to. No, you don't need all your names and levels and you know yeah. beliefs and stuff. But I'm just going to keep this general feeling of when we die, we're going to a happier place. <laughs> yeah, it's like I love the vibe of that heaven yeah. thing you mentioned. Mm. The rest can just you know yeah. you can get rid of that. Heaven <laughs> sounds good, right? I'm going to skip straight to the heaven bit. <laughs> No, 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 no. None of your rules about how I get there. I'm just assuming yeah. that's where I go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like that was the only good bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, so much of the rest of it sold on how good that bit is. So does it change the way you live your life? Um, because obviously part of, you know, the promise of religion in particular is, you know, here are the ways you should live your life so that you can then achieve this bliss yeah. at the end of your life. Whereas if you just are saying that this bliss is not dependent on the decisions you make in your yeah. life necessarily, it's just like a, a bliss you get at the end. Does it change the way that you actually live your life? Well, there was this like really annoying saying back in the church, which was like, lay up your treasure in heaven. And so there were all these people living in these ways that it was a way of basically saying, hey, what you have to do here does not make sense. So don't even question the logic, <laughs> but your treasure will be in heaven, right? And so I've thrown all that out the window because it's bullshit in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I don't want to um, trounce anyone else's beliefs. Um, but somehow I've ended up where in this with this view that I want to maximize this life. Like I want to, you know, and, and, until whenever my final days, I want every ounce of like joy, magic, pain and experience of it. So the fact that I still believe it's going to be blissful doesn't, doesn't mean I sort of postpone and 
it almost I don't I guess because I don't know the why the how it's like I'm sort of hedging my bets that maybe it might be blissful but it might not be as good as this and I really want to just like max out on this shit we're doing right here and now because I know for sure that that's real or at least it feels real is it real Oh, I mean, let's. It's, we're too late into the podcast to really get into that one, whether it's real or not, or whether we're living in some sort of simu- simulation or stimulation. Who knows? Yeah. We might just be. <laughs> uh, okay. So, do you care about legacy? Do you care about being remembered? Do you care about what you leave behind? I care, but I know that within two generations, no one will talk about me anymore. Um. Maybe they'll read my book, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably won't be going to the old hack podcasts. I think about, you know. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't, expect, I don't expect for people to be talking about me in a few generations, but um, I do want to have a family and I want my kids and their kids to, to know that I was like a good person who um, slapped the bass and loved to have a good time. So when you talk about then kind of sucking the marrow out of our current, you know, life that we have, what are the things that are still, you know, on the Tom Tilly vision board? What are the things that you look at and you think that, oh, I'd still really love to do that? Oh, well, I've kind of, I've kind of found the stuff that I love doing and just sort of want to keep doing it. And, it, you know, I'm like a broad brushstrokes intermediate at everything, expert at nothing kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I love just doing lots of different things. So I've got more into like outdoorsy kind of vibes. Like my 20s and 30s were exclusively partying and work. Um, And then, you know, into my late 30s now, I'm like just enjoying being in the mountains or at the beach or all that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of like vibing that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Do you feel an actual connection to nature? Is it like a, a you know, is there a bigger yeah. thing than just being outdoors? Um, the mountains thing really, really hits me. Like I, there was an amazing doco about the power of mountains by the Aussie director, Jennifer Peterm a few years ago, who did Sherpa, that documentary. Mm-hmm. Anyway, really good if you get a chance to see them. And um, there was this sort of like majesty and awe to them. And I remember the first time I ever saw the Swiss Alps, I... I almost broke down. I just found it so beautiful. So there is something that kind of really hits me on a slightly emotional, euphoric level about those kind of like big mountainous landscapes. So I kind of love connecting to that, um, but then I love mixing it with adrenaline. If I had a magic wand and I could fix one thing about the current Australian society that we live in, what would... And this... And this Beyond all practicalities, this is literally my magic one solution. I can fix one thing about Australia and the way that Australia works. What do I fix? Can I have two? Absolutely, 100% you can have two. There okay. are no rules on this podcast. <laughs> you can absolutely have two. The answer that I don't like is that you don't have any. You can right, have three okay. if you want, if you've got good solutions, but two. No, okay. So one is like, if we could somehow like, fix up all the pain we caused by stealing the country mm-hmm. from Indigenous Australia. Like if we could actually sort that out. In a meaningful way, fix it. Yeah. Which would probably to be go back into time and roll up in a really respectful way and engage 
Can we live here too? Is there a way we can bring this way of life that we've developed in Europe and live side by side without stealing the land and the violence that, that came with that? We've got these farming methods. Um, you know, we run cattle and plant things in the ground. Can we do that? You know, like, and just actually, if, if we'd somehow started this country in a collaborative way with the people that owned it, I'd love to fix that. It's so much harder now that we're like 200 years plus down the track. And then give everyone a harborside mansion. Uh, and then give everyone like a, a harborside mansion like Malcolm Turnbull's. Everyone. Everyone. Well, you know, there's a lot of waterways in Australia. It's a big coastline. And, I, you know, most people do live near the coast anyway. But it sort of goes to the income disparity thing. Mm. And it's like... It's good until climate change, though. That's the problem. <laughs> Like Whoops. your plan to, that in. for everybody to have like a mansion on the edge of Australia is fine until the oceans rise. Like yeah, it's we fine voted- until like 2030. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's the plan. We build all the houses, everyone gets a mansion on the oceans, and in between we support the Australian economy by building mansions about 500 metres back that we'll all live in when the oceans rise over our original mansions. Well, it's the perfect way to get people to care about climate change. You build them near the water level. <laughs> Guys, I've got a bit of an out there climate change plan. It does involve building a series of mansions along the coastline of Australia. But don't worry, you all get one. <laughs> um, Indigenous Australia and the issues they face, I think is, I, I 100% respond when people list that as their number one priority because I do think that, you know, the incredible damage that has been done to this country that can't ever truly be healed. But we need to find, we can't fix what happened, unfortunately. We can't go, have the magic wand and go back to what happened. We have to deal with the situation as, as, as it is now and then come up with the second best solution to going back mm-hmm. with a magic wand because I, I just do not feel that we can ever fully be the country that we want to be without trying to reconcile that in whatever way that we can. Yeah, well, that's it's part of the messy side of the hot mess, isn't it? It's like the wrongs that you can't right that you still have to live with somehow. But also, I think that we undervalue the hot part of the messiness. I really like this hot mess stuff. This is a good <laughs> way of framing things because I think we need to make it hot. Like, and I think... I I saw some indigenous, uh, you know, activists and writers who uh, had an issue with the the singing of the national anthem in, you know, I think they sang in the Yora language and um, also in, uh, you know, and so, and in English as well. And some people were like, well, that I find that offensive. It's an offensive song, even if it's sung in one of the indigenous languages. That's the messiness, right? We understand that. You know, even when somebody who I think is acted with the best of intentions, sometimes that can also still be messy. But we've got to make it hot to want to act. I think that at least I do think there is some great joy in people are thinking about this and they're thinking of how can we engage in this. And I actually find the messiness after a bit hot as well because I'm like, well, great. Now I know I've got to see online this week, I've got to see somebody try to make a gesture and do something. Then I've got to see a whole bunch of Indigenous writers and activists saying, here's why I don't think this is the right thing to do. And at the end of that week, I feel like I'm better engaged and better informed about how we can 
do something better next time. So and that's and the hot messy um, process is how things change. That someone does something and it gets a reaction, and then that sparks what unfortunately um, was called too many times a conversation. But mm. but what that means is <laughs> it's people responding to each other, and hopefully, oh. and this is where the the hot idealism comes in um appeals to our better instincts to help people basically i was actually at the at the rugby game on the weekend um where that that anthem was sung in the aura language and like the whole front row of the wallabies were belting out every word of um the the indigenous part of the anthem and it, it was pretty amazing to watch but then yeah as you say then you get the reactions which are a bit uncomfortable and you're like well what's the point of doing that you know it still says young and free when it's an old nation and lots of people aren't free. Um, but yeah, then we end up engaging with it more. So some, you know, by, by taking that initial action, sparking it, hopefully we end up somewhere if you take an optimistic view on it. I mean, the last four years has been such a hit to optimism because we became so polarized. And so things like that would happen, especially around race and the impact of colonialism. And it would just be like you know a trash fire you know my my philosophy is not to be a hot trash fire it's a hot mess you know and there's there's quite an important distinction there because sometimes it just does get really negative and um just causes more pain than progress uh what's what's your greatest strength uh this i've been kind of like looking at this in my book of like i've been going back through all these like things that have happened in my life and I've realized there was a consistency in how I dealt with them. And so I guess my strength is having this, is having this blend of um, being cautious and thought sort of like a bit calculated, but super passionate. So it's kind of the blend of the two things. I think that's kind of my, my strength. And when are you at your worst? Lonely and scared. And um, maybe too forceful, um, but those those things can often be be linked. Um, so, you know, w- when you get angry or uncomfortable, you can kind of, um, you know, respond in ways that you really wish you had done a better job of. So you've got to, like, gauge your own reactions to things and understand what your impulses are and, and unpack them so that you can be the best version of yourself. Uh, final question. I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in history, any point in the future. doesn't matter. It goes both ways. Um, obviously, if you go into the future, you have to be optimistic about the fact that there's still going to be a future when you step out of your time machine, but yeah. it's completely up to you. You do not need to use it for the betterment of society. You don't need oh, to great. kill Hitler. You. you don't need to kill Hitler or any of those sort of things. We're going to send yeah. back appropriately qualified people to do that but you get to go you can go to a point in your own life if you want give yourself some advice you can go to just a more general area of history or the future i don't really mind but i'd like to know what you would use it for yeah look i I think i needed to be around for like the peak of the the disco era in the 80s um that is my jam you know yeah the shoulder the shoulder pads um the outfits the music dancing so, so get, let's get more spe- specific then where would you like if you're talking disco where would you love to be yeah so i'm i'm hitting like um studio 54 in new york but 
you know, I'm also quite well connected in, in Italy, so I'm I'm sort of popping across the Atlantic and dropping into <laughs> some of the clubs there. Um, maybe I'm a DJ, I don't know, but I think people just want me at the, their big disco parties. So I'm I'm popping across to Ibiza and like the Greek islands. Yeah. Um, I'm just sort of largely quite well known in the in the mid '80s disco scene on both sides of the Atlantic. Basically. Well, I like the idea that if you were using a time machine, you literally could go back and game it so that you were the biggest DJ in the world because you would know, <laughs> like from historical context, what the big jams of the next few years were going to be. So you'd always just be able to get them in a little earlier than everybody else. Exactly. You pull the almanac out of the um, yeah. the, glove, <laughs> the glove box of the DeLorean, like <laughs> what what tunes were pumping in 1983? <laughs> like, oh, Giorgio Moroder again? Seriously? <laughs> that guy's amazing. <laughs> and you'd go back and become friends with him, right? So, Tom, okay, people can um, obviously see you on the project. You've often popping up on the project these days, I've noticed. Yeah, so I do some, do some field stories mostly with those guys, so out in the field reporting. And um, yeah, then the- I, know, I hadn't seen the project for ages, and then I was like, "Oh, look, look at Tom! You've been on like like the last three times I've been watched the project, I reckon." Well, um, you mustn't watch it that much because I'm just popping up occasionally doing stories. I that- have not watched it that much. <laughs> I was, <laughs> that I is one hundred percent true. I was um, doing heaps of it last year, and then this year I've been doing some field stories. So I've been doing something every few months with those guys, mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, knocking out an episode of the briefing. Um, every so morning, this is cool. yeah. So this is a daily news podcast. Tell people about it if they don't know. Yeah, so it's it's a basically like just an easily digestible twenty minutes of what's going on in the world, and it's ready at six a.m. So if if you're doing your exercise or commuting to work in normal sort of COVID safe worlds, um, yeah, it's just there. So it's it's me hosting with Jan Fran, who I think you've had. Yes, on Jan Fran, previous uh, two time previous philosopher guest, Jan Fran. Yep, and um, Annika Smethurst is a co-host as well. She has the, not been on the show, but we'd like to get her on at some stage. Yeah, look, I'll have a word to her if you want. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we co-host it and just sort of make the news accessible, basically. So it's meant to be part of a daily habit of getting what you need and getting off that scroll of doom. You know, you can just be searching Twitter or whatever, and but you can also just get trusted, well-informed idiots like me breaking it down for you. And uh, you're writing a book about book, your yeah. time in the church and so your called, journey out of the church. Yeah. So it's called Speaking in Tongues um, and that's coming out next year. So that's that's going to be fun because I haven't really been that personal in my like career. I've you know mostly sort of played the impartial journalist role. So this is the first time I'm kind of really putting my own story and my own perspectives and, and the reasons why I see the world the way I do into you know the public sphere. And it's interesting to me because I imagine there are a bunch of sensitivities if you've come from a family, religious family and stuff Mm. about how you tell that story and, uh, you know, how you tell your side of the story. So I imagine it's quite a a complex and complicated, uh, you know, journey to be on putting together a book like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I had to go and show my parents some excerpts of what I'd written before I actually signed the the book deal. So, Mm. yeah, I was very conscious of all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you don't want to sign a deal and then go, sorry, I can't do it. I'm being sued by mum and dad. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Tom Dilley, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for taking an interest and having me on. 
We'll be right back.